walk with Jesus. We're actually going to be working through uh, the story of the road to Emmaus, so the verses that follow what Pastor Theron had uh, just read. And I, I talk to certain people, and I hear them tell me that a run is great to clear your head. Um, the thought of running just fills my heart with dread. I didn't realize it would rhyme, but it does. Um, the last time I went running, it was a couple years ago. It was actually before I turned 40, and I turned 44 this year, so you know how long it's been since I ran. I actually went running with Joe's, leading singing, and um, here's the interesting thing. I ran a 5K when I turned 30, and I had decided I wanted to run a marathon before I turned 40, and so Joe and I went out to train. Um, we went running. I made it 100 yards, and uh, my knee locked up, which I was thrilled about. Not really bad, just enough for me to fake it. I was thrilled because the knee hurt, and I told Joe, my knee hurts. I was already winded. We hadn't even gotten down his driveway. Um, but it gave me an excuse to quit, and I have not run since then. Uh, even when I play softball, if I get a hit, which they've kicked me off the team, someone pushed me off a ladder so I couldn't play this year. But uh, um, you know, even then, I almost pull a hamstring every time I try to run to first base. So running is, is out of the question. I'm at the point now in life where I get a full body workout just tying my shoes. So um, Heather has come up. She says, did you just come running up the stairs? I said, no, I just tied my shoes. And I'm sitting here waiting for the opportunity to take them off again. So it's, it's, that's where I'm at. So I have made it to this, this pinnacle point in life. Uh, I never thought I'd reach the day where my maximum cardio output is walking. Um, I have actually been prescribed walking by medical professionals. I've, I've gone in for back pain, and they said, you, you just need to walk. And I'm, so I'm, I'm at this point uh, that I need to take a walk, and that's exactly what we're going to do this morning, uh, because walking is exactly what we find two disciples of Christ doing on that first Easter. Uh, now, the Bible doesn't give a reason for these disciples' journey to Emmaus. And by the way, that's a town uh, seven miles northwest of Jerusalem. Uh, they could have had business to attend to because uh, they were in Jerusalem for Passover and all that time and being with Christ. Maybe uh, they lived out there. Maybe they were trying to get away from the turmoil in Jerusalem. Uh, there's no way to know exactly why. Uh, but regardless of their reasons, on this first Easter day, these disciples were on an Easter walk. And we'll look at verses 13 through 26 now. It says, And behold, Two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem, about threescore furlongs, which is seven miles. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holden that they should not know him. And he said unto them, What manner of communication are these that ye have one to another as ye walk and are sad? And the one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answering, said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem, and hast not known the things which are come to pass there in these days? And how about being named in Scripture for being sarcastic to Jesus, right? So that's what he's saying. He's wondering, how in the world could you not know what's going on? That's how public everything is. And he said unto them, What things? And they said unto him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth which was a prophet, mighty indeed, in word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And besides all this, today is the third day since these things were done. 
Yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished, which were early at the sepulcher. And when they found not his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels, which said that he was alive. And certain of them which were with us went to the sepulcher and found it even as the women had said, but him they saw not. Then he said unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Now, as this narrative unfolds, and I want you to see What's happened? We read the first verses. We know Christ has risen early in the morning. We've seen women bear testimony. Peter has gone there and bore testimonies. We looked through Luke. And now two guys are walking to Emmaus and they're talking about what's going on and Christ comes to them. And I want you to notice, first of all, that they were engaged in communication about Christ. They were talking about Jesus. They talked together, communed, reasoned. Uh, They wanted to figure this all out. It had captured their attention although they're disappointed with his death and couldn't wrap their minds around it. They were working through everything that had happened that week. And I want to just do a real recap of what they would have been talking about. His triumphal entry on Monday with 100,000 plus people hailing him as Messiah and shouting praises at the top of their lungs. They would have done this as they come down into the valley and enter into Jerusalem. That sound would have reverberated all the way through Jerusalem. It would have been impossible not to hear in Jerusalem somebody praising Christ as he entered the city. They would remember Tuesday and how Jesus overturned the religious leaders' corrupt temple businesses. Uh, They had a, a basically a flea market going on at the temple, a business that was set up for them to bilk the people as they came to worship. They would think of his brilliant teaching on Wednesday and Thursday, how different sects of religious leaders attempted to trick him and how he so masterfully turned the tables on them and silence them. And every different sect from Pharisees to Sadducees to, to people that were loyal to Herod are coming to Christ in these two days, trying to trip him up. And, and if you're a disciple of Christ, you would have watched him masterfully handle that. But they also couldn't help thinking about the arrest on Thursday night, the illegal trial that took place, and the horrible abuse he suffered, his crucifixion, death, and burial by all of their religious leaders. And so this is the conversation that's taking place. But I want you to notice something because we're going to pick on him a little bit. But before we get to that point, I want you to realize that the topic of Christ warranted a discussion for them. Even though they're going to struggle and even though they're going to need Christ to walk them through Scripture and explain that this is what God had planned from the beginning of time, they were at least talking about Christ. And I wonder, as we begin this morning, do you ever find yourself discussing Christ wondering about how he should impact your life. Because let's give these two disciples credit for that. They were walking to Emmaus for whatever reason it may be, but they were thinking about Jesus and the impact that he has on their life. Though they're off and though they struggle, they were at least thinking about him. And, and we have to, as we launch into this, this morning and every morning really, think about Christ's impact on our life. Do you even bother talking about Christ at all? Or would you prefer to just ignore him? We live in a world that gladly ignores Christ, that pushes him to the side, that doesn't want anything to do with him, doesn't want to talk about him. A couple weeks ago, I had some uh, people here, business associates that were from Holland, and they were talking about the church and how different the church is from Holland. And then they asked me a question about people coming to church, and I started sharing the gospel with them, and their interest died immediately. Because when you start talking about Christ and faith and belief and sins and redemption, That's weird to them. 
And that's what happens to us, right? When we get to the reality of who Christ is, we don't want to talk about him. And so as we, we launch this morning, I do want you to see that these men were engaged in a conversation about Christ, and so should we. Now, into that conversation, Jesus enters. And though these men are engaged, they're connected to the topic of Christ, which is an important step, we do find them enamored with temporal things. They were fixated on their wishes because their takeaway was that they were disappointed by the circumstances. We trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. We thought he would do for us what we've been expecting. We thought he would get us out of Rome. We thought we'd be an independent nation. We thought the millennial kingdom would be here. We thought we would rule and we would reign. See, they've just bumped into Jesus. They're not able to recognize him, which is a miracle, by the way. It's not because they were ignorant or a dunce or anything else like that. Uh, Christ had to reveal himself after he rose from the grave. Only those who he revealed himself to or allowed to see him could recognize him. And so there they sit talking, but they're, they're showing off what their thoughts are. They're focused on current events. They're fixated on the now. They're disappointed with the fact that God hasn't fixed their circumstance like they wanted it to be fixed. They wanted to be free. They wanted to rule again in the world. They weren't thinking about eternity. They weren't thinking about redemption. They weren't thinking about sin and the cost of sin. They're unable to see his work of salvation through his death. They're unwilling to believe the clear proof of the resurrection and its eternal significance. I want you to realize something. They tell Jesus, we have women that travel with us that are part of our group, that are our friends, that we trust, that we work with, who went to the tomb and said he's not there, and that a vision of angels said he's alive. And we know that other people went to the tomb and they did not see Christ and they're coming out with this news and their takeaway is something's wrong with the women. That's their thought. Something's wrong with the guys that went there. Something's weird. This doesn't make sense. They're not thinking about the fact that he rose from the grave. And so with this description, with their mind so current, with their mind unable to move to the eternal, uh, it's right that they get reprimanded by Christ. That's 25 and 26. What does he say? Oh, fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken And we're going to talk more about that word all a little later on. And if you underline your Bible, it's actually very helpful to underline that word. It's not that they didn't believe anything about the prophets. They neglected to believe all that the prophets had said. So understand this. You see the word, oh, fools, and you think, man, Jesus is, he's mean. He's right out the gate. These guys are walking and he's just insulting them. Uh, It wasn't an insult. Uh, The word was descriptive. So we read it and we have one connotation with that word. But what he was saying, what the word means in Greek is it's someone who is wanting in thought, understanding and consideration. The word behind it, that the meaning behind this word here is talking to people who do not understand what they ought to understand. He's saying to them, in essence, you should know better. You should know this. You should have known that this is taking place because you've missed it in the scriptures and you know the scriptures. I put here in parentheses, and we should know better. We are responsible to understand the scriptures. They believed in much of the prophecy about the coming Messiah. 
They believed in his glory and his messianic kingdom that he was going to set up after his return. But they did not believe or see all that was written and predicted of the Messiah, the suffering and pain, the time frame, the ultimately higher importance of Christ dying for their sins and rising from the dead in complete victory over sin and death. You see, they believed a lot of the Bible, but they missed all of it. And so Christ is going to come alongside of them and he's going to say, you should have believed it all and and we should believe it all. But sadly, we are slow to believe all. Uh, I was J.C. Ryle notes this, all should be carefully noted. The disciples believed many things which the prophets had spoken. They did not believe all. They believed the prediction of Messiah's glory, but not of Messiah's sufferings. Christians, and that was in his day, so he says, Christians in modern times too often err in like manner, though in a totally different direction. They believe all that the prophets say about Christ's sufferings, but not all that they say about Christ coming the second time in glory. We will sit here and we'll say, yeah, he died on the cross, but we forget that he reigns, that he's the point of history. We'll forget that it's his eternal kingdom that is coming, and it is his glory which is supposed to be the focus. We will gladly have him on the cross. We will forget that he is to reign and that he's to be glorified and that he is the point of all life. Ask yourself this question. Have I believed all about Christ or only selected the parts that connect to or fit my life? You ever encountered something in scripture and you say, yeah, that's just not how I believe. That's not how I think about it. That doesn't work for me. There's a lot of people that, are happy with Christ on the cross. They're happy with a God of love, but they are not okay with a God who judges sin, that has to judge sin, which is actually what God did, God the Father did to Christ on the cross. That's why he turned his back on him. That's why he was forsaken. That's why he became sin for us. That's why he had sweat drops of blood because he bore real sin for us. But we will gladly push that to the side and we'll grab much of what the Bible says, but we won't take all of it And I don't want us to miss the reprimand from Christ. He wasn't telling them that they were fools and knew nothing, that they were walking there as ignorant people who've never read scripture, who've never never worshiped at all. He's saying, you've only believed much. You have not believed all. And all is what is required of us. I put here, are you even engaging in conversation about Christ? Is he a topic of your conversation or just something you hear about faintly on a Sunday, or maybe only Easter and Christmas that he enters your mind and exits out of your mouth. Think about how much you talk about Christ, how much he's on your mind, how much you share him with others. These men at least engaged in conversation about Christ, but were sadly too temporally minded to see the amazing working out of their salvation on the cross. They missed the miraculous fulfillment of prophecy that took place right before their eyes, the proof of which they themselves shared with Jesus while missing the point. He's not there. Angels said he's alive. What could this be? What's going on? What story are people telling us? See, they, they, they had the facts. They had the details. There's a lot of people that know the details, you talk to a lot of people that know about a Jesus, a historical Jesus, and they know about what, he, what we say he's done, and, and they'll say they believe in him. But do they really believe, or are they just understanding the facts? 
So with all that confusion, you can imagine they were in need of what I put as an Easter lesson. Look at 27, kind of summarizing what Christ is going to do. So he tells them, you guys should know this, but you're slow of heart to believe everything that they've said. Shouldn't I have suffered? They don't know it's him, but that's basically what he's saying. And then enter into glory. Shouldn't I have died and then risen from the grave and then be lifted up? And then 27 says this, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And I've gone through this passage and underlined the word all every time it shows up. You don't believe all the scriptures. He's going to show you all the scriptures that are about him. Um, Because he starts at the beginning. When he says Moses, you're thinking Genesis. He was used of the Holy Spirit to write the first five books of the Bible. So he's starting in Genesis and he's going through all the Old Testament. That's why they're talking about the prophets. It's the whole scriptures that they had. He's going to work all the way through it. For example, Genesis 3.15 begins by revealing God's plan of redemption, showing us that the Redeemer will be bruised, will suffer when he saves us. You read Isaiah 52.13 through chapter 3. 53, which we read on Friday, and it shares in depth the degree of suffering and torture the Messiah must endure, a suffering they witnessed clearly in all that transpired against Jesus. He would have wandered into Psalm 16, 8 through 10, which would let them know he would, he would rise again. He would not see corruption. These are just a few of the many landmarks in Scripture pointing to Christ and his redemptive purpose, pointing to the plan that God had in place for all eternity. You see, this is a fact about Scripture, and this is what Christ was saying. He's saying, if you read the Bible and you interpret it correctly, as you should, then you're going to see me. You can't miss me, because Scripture has always been perfectly clear about Christ. We are just too hardened or dull to see it. I put in here, we miss the obvious. I remember as a teenager, uh, I would work in, well, worked all the time, but worked in the summers and uh, would work with a bunch of guys, usually teenagers, and we would prepare outdoor fields uh, around our greenhouse for the mum crop. And, and what that involved was we had a lot of drip tubes, which are just round tubes rolled all up, and we would go out and, and in the summer you would unroll the drip tube. Now, the fall, when you're cleaning everything up, we would roll these up in about four foot, like you would roll a hose up, think of that. And then we would tie the bundles together with a piece of string and they'd be laid outside. Fast forward seven months, there you are. To unroll that tube, you would need to cut the string, right? Simple thing. This is not really rocket science, or at least we didn't think it was. And so a group of us guys are there. Uh, Some of us have worked uh, at this for a couple years. We had one new guy there working with us. And so we show them how to unroll the tube. Uh, We never thought to show them how to cut string. We didn't think that was needed. Uh, We're unrolling tubes. They're they're about 100 or plus feet long. Uh, There's hundreds to do. Uh, Three or four of us, we've unrolled four or five tubes, and we're coming back, and this new guy is working so hard. I mean, he is pulling as hard as he can, holding his knife, we can see this, against the string, but he's not cutting the string. And I remember we, we walked up, And being teenagers, we're thinking, did someone wrap metal wire around that one? And he hasn't figured out there's metal. We even thought maybe he's using the dull side of the knife. Like he flipped the blade the wrong way. You laugh. He was not using 
the dull side of the knife. He was using the flat side of the knife. Take a butter knife, take flat, pulling with all of his strength. We, it took us a minute when we saw him. Um, and I won't say his name. I'd never, never want him to hear this. I don't think he'd remember. Based on the fact that he used the flat side of the knife, I don't think he'll remember anything. Um, but we just, we, we're trying to wrap our mind around this idea that someone would pull as hard as they can with a flat piece of metal against string. And I remember telling him, I said, you got to turn the knife up. Just this little a quarter rotation, and you'd be shocked how easy this is. I mean, I was like genius to him, you know, this other level. Um, but I call that flat side of the knife thinking. And that's what Christ is kind of saying to them. What I'm sharing with you is just right there. It's not confusing or, or, or conflicted. And as Christians, we too often cut with the flat side of the knife in spiritual things. We miss or ignore the obvious and correct interpretation and application of the Bible. Because we walk to Scripture with our agenda in mind, we read God's Word with our goals. And that's how so many people come in and you say, how are you getting to this? Are you reading the same Bible that I'm reading? They are, but they're not reading it the same way. And I call that flat side of the knife thinking. So when you read the Bible and think it's all about you, that's flat side of the knife thinking. Because Scripture is not about us. It's actually about God, and it points to Him and what He's going to do to save us. His redemptive plan is written through that. Scripture is about God, not me. When we think our culture should interpret Scripture, when someone says to me, you say, well, the Bible's so old, and nowadays, I'm like, well, we're not that smart. We think we are, but we're not. And the fact is, when you start thinking our culture should interpret Scripture, I call that flat side of the knife thinking. It's pulling out a piece of string instead of this quarter turn and cutting through the string. It's, it doesn't make sense because the correct interpretation and application is right there. Look, the point of Scripture is Christ, and that's what, that's what Jesus was telling them. Scripture is pointed to me. It's been about him the whole time. It's about him and his redemptive work, because in all reality, if Scripture pointed to anything else, it would be a false hope and result in failed lives. Some people look uh, that are critics, skeptics of Scripture, and they'll say, oh, the Bible, it's all about God. How consumed is God with himself? Because we give God human characteristics. God, in his infinite wisdom, would write a scripture about himself because that is the greatest good of mankind, of humanity. To know about him and to serve him and to live for his glory. And so if scripture did anything else, it would be a failure. It would be a lie. Too much of what is taught and preached, too much of what we read in books has been focused on us. And it's missed the point of the Bible. But I have to wonder, have you personally picked up on the point of Scripture? Have you recognized and realized that Christ and his work on the cross and victory over the grave is the most important thing in life? I know I get distracted very easily. I get caught up in the world that I live in and what I want to get accomplished and what I want to do with my life and, and where I want to go and what vacation I want to be on and where I want to advance my career. There's a thousand and one things for us to get distracted with. And there's times that we can come back and we need to, to recognize that that is not the most important thing in life. That the most important thing in life is Christ, him crucified, and us proclaiming that. We're called to be his ambassadors. That is our purpose here on earth. 
And so if you're a believer sitting here and you've been distracted by all the other things, this passage here to these disciples, Christ is saying to them, get focused on what you're supposed to be focused on. But if you would never be on the road to Emmaus because you would never have been his disciple, then as you dive into this, I want you to understand Scripture is about Christ because that is the most important message you could ever hear. There's nothing else that has any value above that as it speaks to all eternity. But thankfully for them and us, Christ is patient. He taught through their faulty thinking. He explained so they and we can understand. That's what I love about our Savior. Our faith is actually not complicated. It's clear. But even though it's clear and we complicate what is not complicated, our Lord and Savior is patient with us to explain and help us understand. And so what we find as we close out is men reaching an Easter realization. Look at 28 through 35. And they drew nigh into the village, that's Emmaus, whither they went, and he made as though he would have gone further. So he, Christ is just going to keep walking is what it was. But they constrained him saying, abide with us for it is toward evening and the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them. So it's getting in the afternoon. Why keep on going? We have accommodations. We have things arranged. Why don't you just stay with us? And it came to pass as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it and break and gave to them. So I want you to realize they stopped. And by the time they reached the evening meal, when you read scripture, sometimes you think they, they stopped and they immediately ate because we're so used to pulling off at McDonald's and getting our food in five minutes or sometimes if you go to Taco Bell and Culpepper three hours later, you'll get your food uh, after you order it because that's, that's fast food here. Um, but we're used to quick, but they would have stopped and then the food had been prepared. They have continued to talk through this whole time. And so then he breaks bread with them and he gives it to them. And it says 31, and their eyes were opened. Not that they realize their eyes were open. God allowed them now to recognize him. And they knew him and he vanished out of their sight. And they said one to another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way and while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose up the same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And I want you to realize they had convinced Christ to stay because the day was almost over. They've walked seven miles. The day is spent and they're now returning from where they've went, not having accomplished what they came to do, driven to share the gospel and found, it says, the eleven gathered together and them that were with them, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and hath appeared to Simon. And they told what things were done in the way and how he was known of them in breaking of bread. And so the day's ending. It's close to evening time. They ask him to stay with them. Then it comes time for the meal. And, and Christ says something interesting. Uh, in their culture, if I invite for, for for me to invite you to come eat with me, I would break the bread and I would pass the food out. That was the host would handle the meal. But as the food comes, the guest, which is Christ, he handles the food. So it was, it was different than what would normally be done. And it's then that he allowed himself to be recognized by them and then vanished from their sight. And they were enlightened. I think it's interesting. They recognized Christ and then immediately identified the truth. Did not our heart burn within us? Notice what they're not enamored with a guy just disappeared from their sight. 
You don't hear them saying, wow, do you see that? He just disappeared. Where'd he go? Is he hiding? Is this a magic trick? They're not thinking about that, see? See, when they recognize Christ, then all the things he's been teaching have connected and they go from recognizing Christ to identifying the truth. As one writer notes, what set their hearts on fire was the understanding of scripture they had received from him. They realize now it's all connected because scripture will do that. Scripture brings light to his plan and his purpose and what he's done. The Bible is there. If you're going to tell anyone anything, tell them the Bible. Because now they know Christ's suffering and resurrection were firmly grounded in the Old Testament. God's plan was being fulfilled. Before they were saying, we're kind of bummed out because we thought maybe he was the Messiah and he would redeem Israel. And now they're realizing for the first time, his plan was perfectly unfolding. What they had originally thought was a catastrophe was actually the perfect outworking of God's redemptive plan for humanity. And I want you to realize why in the world do you stand up and you leave Emmaus is because you've stopped thinking about yourself. The result of their realization was they were energized. They retraced their steps and their journey back to Jerusalem to tell others. Forgotten the reason for going to Emmaus. Forgotten what they had set out to accomplish. Forgotten all their doubts. Forgotten all their plans. Forgotten all their disappointment. And I wrote here, a risen Savior trumps all of that. Because if we truly recognize that Christ rose from the grave, what he's done, then all of those other distractions are going to fade away. They had to make known the truth of Scripture. They didn't want any disciple left in Jerusalem to wonder what was going on, and so they go back. Why? The gospel changed everything, and now they had a burning desire to make him known. I'll ask this question, I'm sure, later, but I It makes sense to ask it now. How burning is the desire in your heart to make Christ known? And if you look in your life and you say, well, I don't have time for that, Kenny. I'm busy with other things. Well, then you've distanced yourself from a risen Savior. Because a risen Savior is going to light a fire in you that's going to drive you to make him known. It'll have you walking seven miles in the dark to go tell disciples about what you now know. See, when you realize the truth, it changes your life, your goals, your complete perspective. These men left Jerusalem trying to figure it all out, and they returned to Jerusalem with the answer. And the answer is a risen Savior, a living Messiah. That answer didn't come from them, nor was it invented by them. Instead, it was the answer evident in the truth of Scripture. As Christ shared Scripture with us, did our heart not burn? Just in case you're sitting here and saying, Kenny, sure, if Jesus comes and walks seven miles with me, then my heart will be on fire. And the whole point of this is you have his word right here, and that's supposed to light the fire in your heart. You have no excuse not to be on fire for him. I put here, but do we even realize the truth of the gospel? Do we know that it changes everything? You see, if you look at this as the men I talked to a couple weeks ago as a tradition or what you're born into or what you do or as a community venture, then you don't understand the passion and desire that's there. But when you truly believe in Jesus Christ, when he is your all, when you recognize that you can't work your redemption, that you are a sinner and you must pay for your sins with death and that he died in your place, that he took all your sins upon you, that he rose from the grave defeating death, well, that that changes everything. 
And I know it makes us sound like fanatics and makes us sound weird. I remember looking at these people's faces when I'm talking to them and, and seeing their whole disposition change. Like, we got to get out of this church. We can't talk to him no more. He's weird, you know. We never should have agreed to meet here. Um, but, you know, I know that. And I'm sure you've had those experiences. And it's extremely awkward. But the fact is, it changes everything because it confronts everything about your life because the gospel changes it all. But have you realized personally the truth of the gospel? And if you do realize it, will you act energetically upon it? Will you not just be casual and traditional in this, but instead have a passion and a fire for the truth of the gospel? Can you look at the world around you and say, they need to know the truth? Two men walked a seven-mile-long, dusty road to the town of Emmaus, and along the way encountered the risen Lord. They were discussing the events and disappointments of the past week, at least talking about Christ, which is more than we often do, but still missing the point of Scripture, glossing over the gospel truth that is there. But Christ came along and explained the Scriptures to them. And verse 32 carries a question for us all. It said, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way, And while he opened to us the scriptures. And so this is my kind of closing question here. Is your heart burning? Is your heart burning? Maybe you're a believer and you know that you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ personally for your sins. But you find yourself enamored with this world. You see what you want from scripture, but ignore the whole truth. Will you be enlightened and energized by your risen and victorious Savior and change your focus? Or are you going to continue in hardness and douse the flames of the gospel with the water of worldliness? Because that's what our churches or churches around the world struggle with. We have an amazing truth to share. By the way, we have the only truth to share that needs to be shared and needs to be known. And what we do is take buckets of worldliness and throw that on the flame because who wants to have that burning passion when we can have a car, a house, a vacation, comfort, luxury, you name it, that's there. And it doesn't make those things wrong, but those things become evil when they're the water that puts the flame of the gospel out. Will we change our focus and not let the water of worldliness drown it out? But maybe you've heard many of the truths and embraced them, but have not believed all of them. It's possible that you know the facts of Christ, but do not know Christ. Because knowing about Christ and impossibly embracing the idea of being a Christian doesn't indicate a transformed heart. Just because you sit here and say, yeah, yeah, he was real. He died on the cross. I'm here on Easter. I'll show up at Christmas. I'll I'll be here. I'll do this. Just because you acknowledge certain facts doesn't make you a believer. You see, you must repent of your sins. And what does that mean? It's really straightforward. Agree with God about who you are. He's been very clear. He says we're sinful, that we're unrighteous, that the best we do is as filthy rags. He says we need him, and he's right. And so if you're going to truly know Christ as your personal Savior, it begins with agreeing with God. You agree with him about you, not what the world says, not what your own opinion is. You believe what he tells you, and then you believe his truth and his perspective. 
You put all of your trust in him. You believe completely. That means you, you look at your life and you say it's bankrupt. It doesn't have what it needs. It never could. It doesn't mean you're the worst you could possibly be. It just means you can never be good enough. And I know that's not a popular message in our world today, a world that says you're good enough, you define your own identity, you do whatever you want. This is, this is the message of the world, and we know the propagator of that message. But Christ says, no, we need him. And when you put your full trust in him for forgiveness of sins, that's what it means to, to have a relationship with him. Believe all about him. And I put here as a, a short kind of question, when you examine your life, do you see Jesus there? When you look at your life, is he present? Is he really a part of it? I'm not saying he's tacked on, he's an addition, he's a tradition. Look, I, I grew up and I'm extremely grateful for this. My parents were believers. Uh, they took us to church. Uh, we didn't have a choice. We knew that growing up. We didn't even think about that. There was no option, right? You grew up in a Christian home, Christian values. We were taught, 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 but it still was necessary for me to know that I'm a sinner and to put my trust in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins. My family can't save me. I had to look at my life and see that Jesus was there. So I, as a closing thought, let's not douse the flames of Scripture. Let's not quench the passion for the gospel. Let's not remain enamored with the temporal and end up missing the eternal. Let's pray together. If I thank for this opportunity we have on Easter Sunday to take a walk with you, to walk with these two disciples, to see ourselves in their lives, how we oftentimes will discuss uh, important things, but in the context of our current events, we will, we will lock down the truth to what we're living right now. We will take the eternal gospel truth and, and slam it into our temporal world, consume with how it fixes our circumstances. But we know you're patient with us. You're long-suffering. And we watch you explain to them the truth of you through all of Scripture and we watch them change their focus and change their mind and zero in on worshiping you and making you known. And as we close with a song that focuses on your worthiness to help us realize that you alone are worthy, I hope that it will help change our hearts. If we've seen ourselves uh, dousing the flames of the gospel as believers, that we'll stop doing that that we'll have a passion for the gospel, that we will see this world as needing the truth and needing to know about you, that we'll have a burning desire to walk back to Jerusalem and make sure everyone knows that there's a risen Lord. And for those here that don't know you as Lord and Savior, uh, maybe they know the tradition, maybe they know the stories, maybe they've read the Bible, but they believe much but not all. I hope that you'll convict their hearts. You will prod them to see the need to put their complete trust in you uh, to turn from their sin and ask forgiveness of sins and, and live their life uh, in, in obedience to you. Work on their hearts, convict their hearts. In your precious and holy name, amen.